Okay, yeah, Alex, you weren't a pick me guy? Alex, who was your best when you were in school? You guys, there are moments in the church where there has to be public or No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Alex and I go way back. I led him to the Lord. He's, I'm basically his spiritual father, but um, no, I'm not. Oh, man. But when I was in high school, I was horrible. I didn't either. I, I mean, I was, I mean, I was kind of him, but also at the same time, I wasn't. And the reason why I say that is because I was so confused. Like, I was so confused. And the only thing that mattered to me in high school was what other people thought about me. Anybody else? Like, my whole economy of self-worth was what other people thought of me. And especially two, two people, like two groups of people. One, my teammates. I was big time in sports. I was like, I was like, if my teammates think I'm dope, I'm dope. Especially the older ones, you know? Like when you're playing JV, and then the varsity team's like, hey, that kid's kind of cool. Let's talk to him on the bus. When then I come to find out, they want to talk to me because they're picking on me the whole time, but I'm so socially unaware that I don't know they're picking on me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm 30, but I'm still 13, you know what I'm saying? I'm still hurting. But, um, man, I was... And then so his teammates, and then I was like a... I didn't have any game, right? Right. And so, I don't know why you said that out loud. This is, this is quickly becoming a very, very unsafe environment. I sucked. Yeah, you did! Boss. Oh, we just saying about God's goodness. So, I didn't have any game. And I desperately tried, like, I wanted a girlfriend. You know, like, it's the high school experience. You're like, I want to go to prom. I want to go to winter formal. And I don't just want to go because, like, the, uh, the girl didn't get asked. And so she settles for me. You know what I'm saying? Just me. So I uh, have this whole experience. And then my senior year, I kind of blossom. You know, we would call it a glow up these days. And uh, have a little bit of a glow up, not gonna lie, NGL. You can go to my Facebook, check out my photos. Um, and uh, have a little bit of a glow up, so I start to like develop less game somehow. And the only way I knew how to like flirt with a girl I liked, I think honestly, Andy, if you're being honest, it's still the same way, is like, I just like say names at them. Like, not like weird names, but just like I make up nicknames for them. Like, my wife's name is Andy. But 90% of the time, I call her Angie. I don't know why. It's because I'm bad at intimacy. So I'm like just trying to like tell her I love her, but I don't know how. It's just weird. But when I was in high school, I just tried anything I could just to get a girl to like me. And I remember one time, I went to an extreme. And I said, this is going to be how I get my first girlfriend. And so there was this girl. She was on the soccer team. It was right around Valentine's Day. That's why I'm telling this story. So in case you knew you were thinking about doing this, don't do it. <laughs> And she's playing in a soccer game, and I said, you know what would be super funny? Is if I went over to her car, and I covered it with sticky notes. Like, level 20 riz. You know what I'm talking about? So I covered her whole car with sticky notes. And then, the game ends, and she's walking to her car, and I'm like talking to her, because like I can hold the conversation until like it comes to the point where I'm like, do you want to go on a date? And then instantly, I only can speak Mandarin Chinese, it feels like, and they don't understand a word I'm saying. And I'm just walking with her car, and she goes, oh, man. Like, literally like that. Like, oh, man. 
there's sticky notes on my car. Like so unimpressed, so annoyed, and understanding fully that the hopeless man, not a man, little boy standing next to her was using this pointless attempt to try and woo her. And um, what happened is that she was so tired, so annoyed that she just had her mom drive her home and she decided to leave her car at school. And I was like, oh, that's sick. Everyone's going to know I did that, you know, tomorrow. So, like, people are going to know, like, oh, he's like, I can't. And uh, it rained that night. And so because it rained, it left a dye on her car. And all of the residue from the sticky notes transferred from the paper onto the car. And so uh, her parents were what we call pissed. And, and then I learned another lesson of... When you anyone ever use something for the for the wrong purpose, like it's like designed for something else, and you use it for this. And so I I went over to her house. It was pretty cool, actually. It worked great. I got invited to her house. No big deal. Um, <laughs> to clean her car. Uh, but I got over there, and she was like, "Hey, here's a sponge. Good luck." Essentially, and she like walked inside. And uh, so I'm out in her car and I'm like hurrying because actually, lo and behold, that night was actually winter formal and she was getting ready to go with a different guy. And, um, <laughs> but uh, it all worked out here. Long, long journey until I did though. But she hands me a sponge and it's just not quick enough using like the, the sponge side. I'm like putting soap, I'm like, this isn't quick enough, like I gotta get home. So, like, I can pretend, like, I'm excited to go to this dance as well by myself. And, like, just trying to clean your car. And then I was like, hold on. And I flip it over to, like, the steel wool side. I don't know how you guys bring it out. It got the residue off like that. Along with, like, half of her paint job. And I remember I scrubbed it, scrubbed it, scrubbed it. Everything was great. Didn't notice because, like, after I scrubbed it, I washed it. And it was all sudsy. And then, like, it was clean. And I just left. And then when I got home, I just got a picture sent to me of her car completely scratched up. Like paint job ruined. And so that summer, my entire summer job went to getting this girl's car painted. And it was a horrible experience for me. I lost all my money. The relationship obviously didn't work out. Um, I didn't have a date to the dance. And everything I tried to try and make myself like achieve the thing that I thought would fix my life, like just didn't work. Mm. And when I was thinking about this whole concept of identity, I was brought back to this story because I think if we're honest, as young adults, we'll get to a place where we get frustrated with God because our life is completely broken down and falling apart and not where we want it, when in actuality what's been happening is we've been using our life for the wrong reason, and so we've been causing scratches and dents and things all over our life that we then blame God for. And when we understand identity, we have to first understand where it comes from. Because if we believe that God created us and created all things, then we can only understand our identity when we first understand who we we're made by. The whole premise of a conversation on identity has to start with the one that made us. And so if we're truly made in God's image, then we can only be our full self when we're living in God's full design for our life. And so the series we're starting this month is called Our Father. And it's just going to be a conversation about identity rooted in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 that says, 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our hope in this series is that we would be collectively and individually brought to a place where we understand who we were made to be. But tonight, my hope, before we kind of get there, is to answer a question um, that I think, if we're, if we're really honest, we all have and that culture holds to pretty tightly, which is, is God good? Is God good? When we look at the very nature of God, we have to first, before we can accept an identity from God, we have to believe that God is good before we accept something from Him. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want someone bad naming and dictating my life. I only want someone good doing that. And so before we even begin that journey of figuring out who we are, we have to first answer the question of who is God? Who is God? And there's a passage of scripture that I think sums up perfectly who God is in Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34, verses 8 and 9, it says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. When I read this passage, Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9, there's a lot of fancy words. There's a lot of different things that I would say are insider language to people who are Christians. Holy people. What does that even mean? Refuge and strength and lacking nothing. Like, so does you mean to tell me that when I trust God, I'm instantly going to have everything I want always? It's confusing if we don't understand what it really means. But I think we can answer who is God by just looking at two words tonight. Two words in that passage of scripture, and they're refuge and fear. Refuge and fear. I want to pray about as we get started. Father God, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for who you are and who you made us to be. God, I pray that as we seek to answer the question tonight, who are you? Are you good? God, that you would speak to us. And that we would each individually be able to have that an answer for ourselves. God, I pray that no one would take anything I say at face value. They would consider it, they would weigh it out, and they would make decisions on their own. God, I pray that you would just be present with us. In your son's name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. The first thing we can understand about God in this passage of scripture is out of that word refuge. Refuge in God looks like trusting his word to guide your life. It's a good, it's a good base understanding of what refuge in God looks like. Now you might be saying, okay, you're saying this word refuge, I don't even know what it means. To be honest with you, it's a weird word, but if we take in what it means, it says, being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. God, first and foremost, displays his goodness by being a hiding place for us in this crazy life. The first thing that we can understand about God is he wants to be a place where we can feel safe. I've said a lot in our culture today, trying to create safe space, trying to create opportunities where people can be protected. But I want to tell you that the only place you can truly be safe, the only place you can truly be protected is when you're connected to the one that made you. When you're connected to the one that defines you. One of my favorite passages in scripture is in Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians chapter 4, we hear all about what it means to sit in God's presence. And sitting in God's presence can sometimes be something hard to define. Like, what does that even mean? Like, I can't touch God, I can't see God, I can't actually, like, be around God. So what do you mean I sit in God's presence? It's not like I can just say, hey God, meet me at Steady State, we're going to grab a cup of coffee and just sit and play cards. 
Like, that's, like it, it doesn't work necessarily like that. So I think oftentimes we might do a disservice by not trying to understand what does it actually mean to be in God's presence? What does that actually look like for us? Philippians 4, verses 6 and 9, they answer that. It says this, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds, in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So what I take from this is when I can get my mind to rest on the things that God designed my, my mind to rest on, that's where I can experience God's presence. And so if I want to learn what it means to experience God's presence, I have to first learn what it means to experience God in my thought life. I need to learn how to experience God in my head. Because we often, especially in the world that we live in, we over-sensationalize the experience of God in a big moment when the worship is loud and the lights are going and the fog is spraying and it's emotional and we're crying and everything's amazing. And the second that ends and the adrenaline runs off, where are we? We don't have the tools necessary to get the job done. My wife and I, we have a, a wonderful condo. We love it so much. It hasn't been renovated or updated since 1985, though. Everything in it is brown. Everything in it is old. Everything in it is falling apart. And I have a great neighbor that said, hey, I'm going to help you knock out a light. And he came over and he knocked out a light. But before he knocked out the light and put up new ones, he brought over four toolboxes of tools and he darn near used every single one of them. It was amazing to see. If I tried to change out that light with the tools I currently own, a hammer, a drill, and a screwdriver, it would have taken me probably about four days, and it still wouldn't be done. Because I don't have the tools necessary to get the job done. A lot of us are sitting in a place where we don't know how to experience the presence of God because we haven't taken time to develop the tools necessary to sit in the presence of God. And here's what's great. The only tool necessary to sit in the presence of God is opening up your Bible and learning about who God is. When you open up your Bible and you read God's Word and you study God's Word and you learn about God's character and you begin to see life through the lens that God designed you to, that's how you develop a tool to experience God's presence as you go on and live throughout your life because you didn't have an understanding of what truth is. And when you have an understanding of what truth is, you're not easily swayed by what's happening in your life. When you lose your job, you understand that God has good things for you and he's going to bring something else. When the relationship ends, you understand that God still has a plan and that he obviously has someone better prepared for you in the long run. When you fail the test, you understand that you aren't defined by what makes you successful or bad, but what you are defined by the God that created you. When you have that ability, you have the tools necessary to experience God in his presence everywhere you are. That's good. And it starts by sitting in God's word. I like to say it like this. We can find safety and stability in God's word. We can find safety and stability in God's word. It starts there. The hard part about God's word, though, and I'm going to acknowledge the tension, is it's going to change you. 
I was listening to a pastor um, talk about his church the other day, and he said that he had someone walk up to him and say, oh man, I love this church, I love what's going on here, I love all these people, this is amazing, but like, if I keep coming back, are you going to change me? And he was like, no, but I hope God does. Because what oftentimes happens and what we're maybe trained to do in our world today is we're trained to think that how we're currently operating doesn't need to change. And that if I need to change because of what I read in God's Word or because of what I experience in a tight-knit community that loves me and loves God in the same way, and they call out something in me and say, hey, you're a little prideful in this. Hey, you're a little bit off base in this. Hey, you got this sin in your life you need to get rid of. Hey, this is no longer supposed to be a part of you. It was a part of your old life, but it's not going to be a part of your new life. When we read God's Word, it's going <laughs> to challenge us. It's going to confront us. And hopefully it's going to change us because that's what needs to happen. You can't expect to experience God's presence if you do not want to change in the midst of it. Galatians 5 tells us, though, that we can trust that a life guided by God's word will look different, but that that isn't a bad thing. Galatians 5, 19-23 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all the like. Sounds like our nation, does it not? Sounds like the current, present day of our world. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but... So I'm going to pause right there. It's one of my favorite things about God and God's Word. God's Word will never leave you out of place of condemnation. If you're experiencing condemnation in God's Word, it's because you haven't kept reading long enough. Because the entire story of God's Word only finishes with reconciliation and redemption. The heart of the Father is not condemnation, it's redemption. Let's move on. That wasn't even there. That was free. All of this is. You're not paying for this. Praise God. Because if you were, I wouldn't have any money. <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So my favorite line right here in this whole passage. Against such things, there is no law. Man, the presence of God is something that is so good, it cannot be denied. When you read that list of things, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, I think we could all agree that those are the things we would like to define our life. That those are the things we're striving towards. That those are the things we would like to not only define our life, but the lives of those around us. Not only lives around us, but our communities and our cities and our states and our country and our world. I think a lot of the things that our world fights for are actually things that God wants them to fight for. They're just fighting for them out of the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Things like world peace are not bad. Things like all people feeling loved and seen and known are not bad. But I think, again, we have a misconstrued understanding of what identity looks like. And we think love means you do whatever you want to do without changing. And I'm just going to allow you to continue to do whatever it is that's tearing you away from the presence of God. It's not love. It's enablement. The boundaries given in God's word are for our blessing, not our abuse. 
And I say that with conviction because I understand who I'm speaking to. I understand that I'm speaking to a generation that is known as one of the most biblically illiterate generations, not because they're stupid, but because they've been abused by the Word of God. But because the people that are raising them have been told that they're condemned to hell, that they're full of shame, that there's something wrong with them, that God hates them, and that the God who created them doesn't love them. It's the exact opposite of what the Word of God says. There's a purposeful design and intention to who we are and how we operate. And to think we know better than the one that created it, created that in us, it's just foolish. I don't know about you, but I haven't created many things. In fact, I would go as far to say that I don't think I've actually ever created anything on my own without some level of instruction or direction from the person that originally created it. All I'm doing is recreating what someone else created. Like, I feel real confident when I get home and I put together an Ikea dresser. You know what I'm saying? Like, I did that. But if I didn't have directions, it would not be standing. And so many of us, we think that we could throw out the directions for our life and just put things together how they are, and then we just settle for something that's half of what it could be. We settle for a dresser that has no stability, no wonkiness, can't hold weight in the drawers, can't roll in and out. Why? Because we're so prideful to think that we could dictate how it was supposed to be done rather than trusting the one that wrote the instruction manual. Mm -hmm. That's what refuge in God looks like. Refuge in God looks like a place where we get to learn what it means to be safe because we get to see how we were originally created to be. Establishing and trusting God as a refuge is what then actually helps us understand what fearing God means. And I wanted to talk about this word specifically, the fear of the Lord, because this was something that I struggled with for so long in my life. Fear of the Lord simply means you know what life is like without it. I wish someone would have told me this when I was 16, when I was in college. Because my whole understanding of the fear of God meant that I had to fear God's wrath. That God was angry God. And that he was looking down with a magnifying glass hoping to burn me and tear me apart. But in actuality, what meaning, what the fear of God actually means is you understand and you fear what life will feel like if you don't have him. You fear what life will feel like if you don't have God as your refuge. Because you know what it means to have God as your refuge. And so you never want to lose that. Growing up, I was raised uh, in a Christian home. Uh, I would, my dad was a pastor. I was at church 24-7 because we literally lived at the church in a house provided by the church because they didn't give my dad this thing called money to work. And so we had a really weird experience with church. And growing up, I had a knowledge of God, but no relationship with God. And so because of that, because I had so much knowledge of who God is, and God's laws, and God's statutes, and God's plan, and God's will, and all of the things that God wanted from me, and because I wasn't meeting those expectations, the fear of God I had was the fear that I was going to hell. I didn't have a fear of God in the aspect of understanding what it was actually like to know God and to be in God's presence and to fear losing that because I never developed a relationship with God. Be remiss to do anything to mess that up. 
It's a healthy fear of what it means to have a relationship and the boundaries we have in our relationship to the point where I will not infringe on those boundaries because I want to stay in relationship with her. Yeah. And that's what a fear of God means. You want to do what you can to stay in relationship with God. Matthew 7, 24 and 27 is one of the, my favorite parables because it spells out what it means to have a relationship with God so simply. It says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rain came down, the, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. If we hear the good news of God and don't allow it to change and transform who we are, then we're allowing our life to be built on a foundation that will only fail us. Because it wasn't designed to sustain us. If we do not operate in the design that we were created with, we will not be able to sustain the life that we're living. We have such an issue with depression, anxiety, suicide, and so many other things in our world today. Not because of Instagram, not because of TikTok, not because of Facebook, not because of musicians or TV shows, of all these different things. We have all the issues we do as a society today because everyone is putting their foundation in the wrong thing. And so because of that, when life gets hard, when their foundation gets shaken, when their identity gets called into question because they fail at something, or someone abandons them, or someone hurts them, instantly their whole life falls apart because they have zero base for their life. And it's ripping us apart internally to the point where then we rip apart our society. And so again, I genuinely believe that the entire functioning of our world could be fixed in an instant if everyone suddenly began to understand what their identity in God actually meant. The reason why I believe that is because God's word tells us that. God's, word, God's heart has always and will always be to save us from ourselves. Ben, you guys can come up and join me. I'm finishing up. John 3, 16 and 17 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As I read this verse... Go on to verse 18. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I read this verse with a heavy heart and with tension. And the reason for that is I understand that I have a lot of close friends and family who wouldn't say that Jesus is the one Savior of the world and that God sent Jesus has a forgiveness for our sins and that God loves us so much so that he would do so 
And the harsh reality of saying that is the understanding of what that means for their life. I don't say these things as someone who's devoid of friends who don't know Jesus. Of family who doesn't know Jesus. My life is full of them. But what I do know is this. I was a young man in college. Severely depressed. Because as a young boy, I learned really quickly that if I fail, that people don't like me. And so because of that, I hid everything in my identity and my accomplishments. I told myself unless I did good in school, unless I did good in sports, unless I got attention from girls, that my life was meaning of nothing. And I was able to make it through middle school. It was hard. I was bullied a lot. But I made it. And then I was able to make it into high school and kind of figure out what it meant to fake it. And that high school boy got really, 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 really good at doing exactly what he needed to do to get the praise of other people. And then that boy graduated high school and he got to college. And when he got to college, everything he based his identity in was gone. The, scholar, the, the, the scholarship he got to go play soccer was taken away because of injury after injury after injury. The school that he found his value and his purpose in began to slowly but surely shrink because other people were smarter than him. And then his, his relentless pursuit of just trying to find affirmation in women led him to just become a terrible shell of a man. that would just use anything and anyone to make himself feel better. But then one day, I had a friend sit me down and talk to me about this phrase in the Bible called the Mago Day, which means image of God. And he said, Chandler, what's amazing about your life is that it's not your life, but it's a representation of God's image here on earth. And you have a choice. And that choice is you can continue to live for yourself and define where you find safety and define how you should live and fear nothing. And just kind of live it to the max until it's over. Or you can have an understanding that there's a God who loves you so much that he sent his son down to this earth so that you can have forgiveness for your sins. But more than that, you wouldn't just be forgiven of your sins, but you would then have the Holy Spirit to walk with you in life, to comfort you, to give you peace when things are hard. And you'd be given a, a book that's an exact blueprint of how you should live your life. It may not say the exact words to answer every single question, but it has the answer to every single question in it. And more than that, you're going to be surrounded by people that love you so much that they want to see God's best for your life as well. Sounds like a pretty good life, doesn't it, Chandler? And I remember sitting at a camp, crying my eyes out, saying, man, I want that. I don't want what I have. I don't want it based on me anymore. 
It was that day at UC Davis in Northern California when I began the process, because it is a process day by day by day of understanding what it meant for my life to be defined by Jesus. What it meant for my identity to be found in the creator that created me. And it's the same invitation and process that you can begin today as well. Every week at Young Adults, we're going to give a gospel invitation because if we preach the Bible and don't tell people about Jesus and give them a chance to respond, we've missed exactly what we were supposed to do. And so whether one or 100 people raise their hands, we're going to give that invitation every single week. Because I truly believe that in one moment, your life can begin to change. And so tonight, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to picture as if you're the only person in this room. And as you're sitting in this room, God is just sitting in front of you, telling you he loves you. He's proud of you. He made you on purpose for a purpose. And that regardless of where you are right now, that he wants to have a relationship with that all you have to do is ask and he'll forgive you of all your sins. And as he does that, that you will instantly be given an eternal hope in knowing that what this life tries to bend and break you for is the very thing that God's glory and strength will be proclaimed in. To your last day on earth, God will be perfectly working out